0: is episode 100 of Aloha Mora for September 6, 2014. Hey guys, welcome to a really awesome episode of Mora. It is our 100th episode. How exciting is that? I'm Caleb Graves.
1: Yay! I'm Kat Miller. <laughs> I'm
2: Rosie Morris. And it is my pleasure to introduce today's guest, who is Madeline. Madeline, would
3: you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. My name is Madeline. I am from Jersey City, New Jersey. I am a claw. So I was a, <laughs> yes. I was a hat stall between Slytherin and Ravenclaw. Uh, Cat, I did eventually go with Ravenclaw, but it was a hard
1: choice. Mm, Fair (laughs) enough, fair enough. It would be hard for me, too. I understand. (laughs)
3: Um, And I am a food scientist. Mm -hmm.
0: Oh. Meaning? Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. Um, I develop um, new food products. If you've been to a grocery store in America, and actually in the UK as well, you've probably at least walked past something that I've developed that's in a grocery store. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's a really cool job. I play with my food all day.
0: That's very exciting. What yeah. kind of
3: things have you made then? Give us an example. Um, so if you're familiar with, uh, Progresso Soups, it's a, it's a U.S. brand. Um, I worked yep, on, a, totally. I worked on a number of Progresso Soups. Um, I also do a lot of product improvement. If there's an, un, you know, an undesirable ingredient, I remove it or, you know, make it healthier or something like that, which is a lot of what I did on Progresso Soups. So that was my big brand for a long
1: time. Wow. So, could you make the Butterbeer Oreo happen? (laughs) (laughs) If I worked for Kraft, yes. But, This is a thing we would like. (laughs) Yes, shucks. (laughs) It was worth a try, I guess, right? Yep. Definitely.
0: Well, before we do get started, I just want to take another moment to remark on how awesome it is that we've hit 100 episodes. I can't believe it's been...
1: I know, triple digits. It's really exciting. Hard to believe, but exciting. And to get it on a Hogwarts week
2: as well, when everyone's gone back to school, it's just, it's serendipity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Timing is everything. It really is. But we will get right down to it. But before we do that, we want to remind you to read Chapter 22 of Order of the Phoenix, St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries, because that is what we will be discussing in just a moment.
2: But as usual, before we get to that, we have to discuss the topics from last week. You guys have been sending in your comments, and we love reading them. So here are just a few examples of what you've been saying this week. Our first comment comes from Looney Lauren on the archives, and it says, You guys mentioned the fact that Harry is not having a reaction of his own while Umbridge is bullying Hagrid. Um, He is simply observing the others. I also noticed this while reading it, and after hearing you guys discuss it on the podcast, I went back and re-read the passage to get a better understanding of why. I noticed that Harry would describe his feelings before he found out about the Thestrals, how he was relieved and pleased that he was finally going to understand the mystery, but after Hermione stated that only people who have seen death can see the winged, winged horses, Harry did not have another comment or reference to his own personal feelings for quite a while. He watched as a spectator as Umbridge picked on Hagrid, and saw how outraged Hermione got, um, and how gleeful Pansy, pug-faced brat, got, um, (laughs) but did not say a word himself or react in any way that we saw. I think that perhaps Harry was too busy processing the fact that he has seen a death, and that is why he can see the Thestrals. Everything going on was merely a distraction from his thoughts. Harry does not comment again until Hermione brings up the Thestrals, saying that she wishes that she could see them, to which Harry replies in a quiet voice, Do you? The fact that he does not reply until they are brought up again seems to me as if Harry has caught, has been caught in thought um, about these creatures and what it means for him to be able to see them. I just thought this was a really kind of intellectual idea about why um, this kind of the narrator distances itself from Harry's thoughts for for a, a moment while Harry kind of processes it in him, in his subconscious and and we get instead a view of the rest of the scene. Does this go with what you guys were saying last week?
1: Um, <clears throat> nobody had considered that, but I think that's a brilliant consensus. I would agree. I mean, seeing the Thestrals, I guess, is all about processing death, right? And here he is just processing it even further. That I, I agree with this. That makes total sense. Yeah.
3: It feels, very, it feels very realistic that he wouldn't just move on to the next thing after finding out about Thestrals. That he'd mm-hmm. it'd be taking a little bit of time to think about that.
2: And it's the first time that we've really seen something that is affected in such a, a almost like primeval way, like this is a very basic life and death thing that would affect your viewpoint, which is something that we haven't really come across much in the magical world yet. The idea that seeing death will change how you see the world.
0: Definitely. And like, you think about what Harry's facing here, like, aside from the fact that he's, you know, processed death, he st- the book or his journey to Hogwarts starts out with seeing these Thestrals and trying to convince other people that he is seeing these things, not knowing then what it meant. And when the lesson starts, he's so relieved that finally he will be vindicated in his belief and then to have it flipped on him that it's really, I mean, it's a horrible thing that he's actually able to see them. That's that's really hard to um, take in. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, great. Our next comment um, comes from Celestina is my homegirl. Someone's obviously taking your phrase there, Caleb, and Changing up who? Not Minerva this time?
0: Ugh, I will take issue with the phrase. <laughs> Celestine is awesome, though, so I'll I'll be okay with it. Sure.
2: Um, this comment is actually about Umbridge, and it comes back to our discussion of colours um, and the fact that she's wearing green. Um, and it says, You brought up the fact that Umbridge is wearing green during her inspection of Hagrid's lessons. And while I agree that this could be Joe hinting at Umbridge being a Slytherin, I think it might also have something to do with Green being one of the colours wizards and witches wear in public to reveal themselves as magical. Since Umbridge's whole aim with her inspection of Hagrid's lesson is to totally undermine him, I think she might be wearing green to symbolise her superior status as a fully educated witch. Green is also associated with dark magic, which speaks perfectly for her intentions and behaviour in this scene. To my knowledge, this is the only time we ever see Umbridge wearing a different colour, And the choice of green as the variation seems pretty significant. Now, I'll just add a little addendum that someone else later then commented that she actually wore green at the um, Gryffindor Slytherin, no, Gryffindor Ravenclaw, I think it was, um, Quidditch match as well. Um, So it's showing her kind of nasty intentions um in both of those scenes
0: yeah it's a really good point to bring out the like the color that most witches and wizards wear out in public i had never thought about that but i totally buy it
1: yeah it's really clever that's oh our listeners you're all so smart (laughs) (laughs) i think
2: those colors are a detail that we only really hear about is it in the first book as well the idea that mm. they wear these colours out in public I think that's the very first chapter in the first book before even Hagrid, not Hagrid Harry makes it to um, the Dursleys we get those little glimpses into when the magical world is kind of um, celebrating and um, then the
1: uh, further comments about them on Pottermore yeah. yes
2: of course yeah, yeah. Um, but that would be why we kind of don't really pick up on that as a, a colour thing but maybe we should more maybe we should pay more attention to what people are wearing throughout these books probably would give some good insight most likely it would and finally in this section um our comment comes from hufflepug um who always has some brilliant comments Um, and this time it's on harry and cho's kiss and it says harry and cho's kiss was not at all the kind of satisfaction that those who shipped them were expecting but that's because from a literary standpoint it was meant to be as awkward and confusing as many first kisses are you know when you're in high school and you're so excited about something, but then you just get let down because too many conflicting feelings are tangled up with it? Joe nailed that feeling, in my opinion. They were never meant to last, in the same way that very few people end up with their first crush or significant other. Harry needed chose to teach him that he was seeking a girl who he could be comfortable around, who we all know ended up to be Ginny. By the way, I adore Ginny in the books, partly because she and Harry have such an energetic and joyful relationship.
3: I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree that most first kisses are very awkward, but I really hope most people's first kisses didn't have one person crying. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's, I yeah, agree. I
2: do think that the movie kiss was even more awkward than the book kiss, though. Like, it was just, there, there's something uh, just very
1: odd about that scene. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> uh yeah, forced at best, I think. <laughs>
2: yeah, which is a shame, but never mind. It's true that yeah, this was meant to be awkward, and everyone's reaction was like, "Oh, awkward!" So it's mission accomplished.
1: <laughs> exactly, and we'll Which get also, there. Also, like,
0: it's interesting because we really we don't actually see the kiss right in the book or read. No, yeah, I should say, but it's
1: implied. You know, she she's able
0: to draw out that awkward nature so well, even though it's like told second second hand.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, conversations between Harry and Ron are good at awkward. So. <laughs> Well, great. And I guess with that, we'll jump into the podcast question of the week responses from last week. Just to remind everybody of the question, um, this was one that I think was really polarizing. There was a ton of ideas from everybody, but let me read it first. It says, in this chapter, J.K. Rowling confessed that she originally intended to kill Arthur Weasley. Keeping in mind that Sirius Black probably still would have gotten it at the end of the book, and considering how important Arthur is, let's ponder how the books would have been different should this death have happened in this place... At this time, in this way. So, as I mentioned, lots of polarizing views, a million good ideas. It took me forever to decide on these few comments, mm-hmm. so definitely head over to com, Put your opinion in there, read all the opinions. It's incredible, they're amazing. But our first one here comes from Chocolate Frog Ravenclaw. It says, "I think that Arthur's death would have been deeply scarred if not ended Harry and Ron's friendship." Harry feels guilty just being the snake, and while Ron doesn't blame him, it would be incredibly hard every time you looked at your best friend to know that he may have even remotely been involved in the death of your father. If the Harry-Ron friendship can't survive, I don't think Harry would have been able to track down all the horcruxes and take down Voldemort. Most of his driving force is love, especially love for his friends, and I think a fair amount of that love would have been replaced by guilt. And in response to that, Snuggles with Niffler's, Good username (laughs) says, I think that Arthur's death could have helped Ron better relate to Harry with both of them losing their father figures within a few months of each other. Assuming Sirius would still die in the veil. Ron would have had a whole new empathy for Harry's struggles. I believe they would have grown closer in their shared grief and Ron never would have left in deathly hallows. He would have had more of a personal reason to want Voldemort gone to avenge his father's death. Ron would have indeed lost some of his humor, but his character would have gained a lot of depth. So two conflicting viewpoints. What do you guys think?
0: I'm definitely with Snuggles with Nifflers on this. Um, I think it would have, you know, the how long it would have taken Ron to get to this point um, is, it, you know, that's something we would have to think about because it obviously wouldn't be immediate. Um, Ron like deals with things very internally. We see it in this upcoming chapter how he responds to it compared to the twins and Jenny. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it would have brought them closer together, I agree that he would have lost some of his humour and the personal vengeance would have been a very big factor for him.
2: I think the Chocolate Frog Ravenclaw's point about Harry feeling guilty being the snake um, is kind of more of an issue than Ron, um, Ron's reaction. I mean, obviously he would be incredibly sad about his dad, but I don't think he would blame Harry in the way that Harry is blaming himself. Um, so if if... Arthur had died I think that Harry wouldn't even bother kind of trying to find out what it meant about having the snake um that snake feeling inside him he would have just completely closed up inside himself and he would have cut himself off more um probably to you know protect his friends he he honestly believed that he was the snake in those moments after. So if Arthur had died, then he would feel like he had murdered his friend's dad.
1: Yes. And a lot of listeners actually completely agree with that as well. That was another kind of popular opinion on the on the responses this week.
3: I think it could have gone either way. I mean, grief is so unpredictable. It's really hard to say. I mean, for some people, it it pushes them together and makes their bonds stronger. But for some people, it it just absolutely drives them apart. And there's really no way to predict that because everybody reacts to
1: grief so differently.
0: Especially when you haven't had to deal with that kind of grief before. It's near impossible to predict.
1: Yeah, Ron has had kind of a, a charmed life while poor, but still right, a pretty easy life. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there would have been maybe somewhere in between this, you know, because like Rosie said, Harry probably would have pulled away. Ron would have wanted somebody to talk to about it, you know, and since Harry was really the only person who doesn't have a father... He would have reached for him, but Harry was unavailable, and uh, who knows? Maybe eventually it would have come back, I would hope. I think Her- I think Hermione would play a very important part in this as well, as far as grief counseling goes, I suppose. Yeah. But our next comment here comes from Ginny, but not the Weasley one. It says, <laughs> Another possibility that I considered was the Harry-Ginny dynamic. The grieving process does bring people together in a certain way, and I wondered if Harry would have interacted with Ginny more prior to Book 6 had Arthur died. Naturally, Harry would have been grieving as well, but I'm sure he would have wanted to be with the Weasleys during that time. It very well could have sparked the closeness with Ginny that later occurred, but in a different manner. I'm not sure how a lack of Ginny's fiery spirit would have affected Harry's attraction to her, but I'm also interested to consider things if death brought them together. Would the Battle of Hogwarts been too much for them to handle? Or would Ginny be a different person altogether and become incompatible with Harry? Her personality seems such a compliment to his, and I don't know if their relationship would work if they were too similar, both having lost important people in their lives. So, what do you think?
0: Well, I think that Ginny is probably even more likely than Ron to respond in a, all right, I'm ready to fight to get revenge sort of way. Um, Mm -hmm. We've talked about this on episodes in the past that, she and the twins are very similar in a lot of ways um so yeah i don't think that i don't know like i definitely think she doesn't lose her fiery spirit but i can see where this person is um going by them being too similar in the way that the reason why they're fighting is very similar at this point uh if that were to happen that would be tough
3: i do like the idea that from a book from a Plot standpoint, it would have given Harry and Ginny more of a reason to interact and, mm-hmm. and more overall interaction since that's always been a complaint because it's kind of like you see each other a few times and now they're the loves of each other's lives.
1: I, I wonder if Ginny would have been more involved in, um, you know, say they got together sooner and the whole Horcrux hunt actually did happen. I wonder somehow if Ginny would have been more involved in that. Maybe she would know more being with Harry.
0: Yeah, it would have been harder for Harry to say like I can't do this right now because I'm leaving school to go to the Horcruxes a- and leave her behind. Um mm-hmm. I would I don't see her letting it happen as much as she does in the books with the way it does actually happen.
2: Right? I don't know um if it would have brought Harry and Ginny to place her um in that first instance um I I think she's got you know, she had different boyfriends doing this book. I think she would have been closer to them still more um within this this kind of grieving process. So I don't know if it would have um changed very much how they came together. Um especially if Harry did feel guilty over him over the his role in the death, rather than, you know, Ginny's.
1: Okay, well our last comment here comes from Leslie Lovegood, it says because I love Lupin, who basically died in Deathly Hallows because of Joe's choice to save Arthur, I have often wondered what it would have been like if Joe had given Arthur the axe in order. The thing I can't get past is that I can't see how Harry would have survived Arthur's death and still been prepared to do all he had to do to defeat Voldemort. The Weasleys are the only family that Harry has ever had, and he often thinks of them as a model-type family. With all their quirks, Harry longs to have what they have. When Harry sacrifices everything to stop Voldemort, he's doing that for several reasons, one of which is to protect that idea of family, to stop Voldemort from ripping apart more of them. If the patriarch of the only family that Harry has left is taken from him, I'm not sure if I see him having the strength to go on. Harry is also so self-deprecating that I can see him really distancing himself from the rest of the family, whether that's what they want or not.
0: Especially with also losing Sirius at the end of the book. Ugh. Right, Like, he loses Sirius as, like, a very, like, close personal relationship, and then, like, Leslie Lovegood says, loses Arthur as that symbolic family that he is the only family he can really cling to.
3: Yeah, I think killing Arthur, Sirius, and then, you know, spoiler alert, Dumbledore, um, <laughs> would have been a little too heavy-handed in the, like, hero's journey sort of way
1: killing off all of the mentors. Yeah. Right, right, because then, oh, God. Because then we get Lupin, too, yep. who...
0: Yeah. But Lupin's death, while, like, he's certainly one of Harry's mentors, it happens at the very end. It doesn't affect right. his journey. Right. And in, in a way, it helps him with the resurrection stone.
2: Right. Do you oh think boy. it would have been even worse? Well, it, yeah, it would have been. Um, <laughs> do you think it would have been a different reaction if it had been Molly rather than Arthur?
0: Oh, it would have been much worse. Yeah.
2: Much, much, much worse.
0: Yeah, to, to, why? I don't even want to think about Molly dying.
2: I know. <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's more of a maternal connection, which would have almost balanced out Sirius and made both of them even much worse because it would have been yeah. losing a mother and a father figure in the same book. Whereas Arthur is kind of a step above father or something. He's more like an yeah. uncle at this point.
0: Especially since Molly and Sirius argue with one another over Harry's best interest in the book.
1: Yeah. It would have definitely um, kind of. So, a word I'm looking for, um, further cemented the whole mother's love theme, though, mm-hmm. in the series, for sure. I don't know but...
0: if I could have kept reading if Molly oh. had died right here. I know. Oh, oh my God. God. I no. just got emotional
1: thinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting uh, a little teary too just thinking about it. Yeah, too much. It's okay. She survives. We're all right. <laughs> as far as we know, she's still alive this day. This day. September <laughs> 6th, 2014. Anyway. So that's, uh, that wraps up our podcast question of the week responses. Like I said, there's so many amazing comments this week, as always. So keep heading over to alohamora.mongolnet.com and keep the conversation going.
0: All right. It is now time to move into our chapter discussion.
3: Chapter 22,
2: St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries.
0: All right. So this is a really. Important chapter in that a lot of things happen. Um, We learn a lot about what's, or we start to learn a lot about what's possibly going on with Harry, and we're introduced to St. Mungo's, which is really great. So basically, the events of the chapter: McGonagall shows up after Harry has his dream. Um, She leads Harry and Ron to Dumbledore's office. Um, There's a lot of things that happens in Dumbledore's office. Um, We meet a couple of the former headmasters and head headmistresses. And Dumbledore uses them to find Arthur, whose injury is confirmed. Harry and the Weasleys port key to Grimauld to wait for Molly, who shows up and says that Arthur is actually going to be okay and he's in the hospital. And then we go visit Arthur in the hospital and get a little inside order of the Phoenix chat. So the first big event is everything that happens inside Dumbledore's office. I found it interesting that when Professor McGonagall and Ron and Harry go into the office, Dumbledore is in a nightshirt, so it seems like he's either would be ready for bed, but it says that he's wide awake, sitting at his desk, which struck me as very strange, um, because I don't think Dumbledore usually just sits around his desk in his nightshirt. So it made me wonder, did he somehow know something was going on? Did he expect Harry to be showing up? Somehow,
1: doesn't it say that Dumbledore had begin to suspect that this might happen when they're when the twins when they're listening to the conversation in the hospital wing or in the at St. Mungo's? One well, thought
3: he just was suspecting that um, Harry was going to start seeing Voldemorty things.
1: Right, right. So that's what I mean. So maybe not exactly in this moment, but I do think that he was expecting it to come up
0: yeah that's yeah that's it definitely it does allude to that at the end. That's why I'm just does. like very curious um about this particular moment,
1: yeah
2: but there's enough going on out in the the real world that there would be things to keep him up and discussing with his portraits. Um, right, so the kind of the follow-up to so
0: that me. is, do you think Vold- or, Dumbledore has had a lot of sleepless nights as of late because so much is going on?
1: I'm sure. I'm not sure he ever sleeps anyway. Let's, <laughs> like I, you know, maybe he's one of those people that can sleep standing up. Um, but yeah, well, I imagine. His
3: desk? Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Well, if there's um, blood replacement potions, I assume there's some sort of wizard caffeine. Uh, oh, if there is. That. Can I have some, please? Seriously.
0: <laughs> Um, Another interesting thing about this moment is um, how Professor McGonagall acts in this scene. Um, We get several scenes, especially in this book, of her stepping outside of that typical professor role where we see her more as a person beyond that job. But this one is um, I really enjoyed because... As Harry recounts his dream to Dumbledore, she doesn't scold Harry or find the dream ridiculous, um, as we've seen her react to some things in the past, but seems genuinely perplexed and concerned about what's going on. And the meeting itself between the four of them, the two professors and the two students, almost seemed as if it was a meeting of peers in the Order of the Phoenix, which is really, I th- um, found really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think McGonagall has... An- <laughs> I'm not sure how to say, like an odd level of respect for Harry, like, Mm -hmm. because she knows, obviously she probably knows more about him in a sense than most people would because Dumbledore, I guess with the exception of Snape. Um, So I think in some ways she understands that he's not crazy, (laughs) (laughs) I guess is where that's coming from.
2: Especially if Dumbledore has been expecting Harry to start seeing things like she's been on the lookout for this as
3: well as his his head of house.
0: Right,
3: and I think it's also meant to be a contrast with Dumbledore, who's kind of giving Harry the cold shoulder. To at least have Professor McGonagall there, trusting him and believing in him verbally, and and showing him that she believes in him, so he's not totally alone.
2: Yeah, and she also she like actually seems caring, which Dumbledore doesn't at the, at the moment. So that's the contrast there as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, Harry is described as you know looking visibly sick, um, so she's. Taking him seriously in that respect as well, like she is looking after him in every sense of the word, mental health wise, physical health wise, and also getting to the the bottom of the problem at the issue, um, by you know taking him to um, Dumbledore and getting it all sorted out. So she's completely the person you want in a crisis. She is exactly the person who can take charge and make sure everything is sorted out, and whilst also looking out for you personally as well.
0: Fan, this is why she's my homegirl. exactly <laughs> <laughs> um but harkening back to dumbledore being re- um, expecting something we definitely get evidence of this here because he seems to immediately believe harry um his first question is uh, what was harry's perspective during the attack um and so he he n- immediately knows it's happening he's ex- been expecting something of this sort um and then when he re- after he's done recounting the attack um We see Dumbledore use the portraits, the former heads of Hogwarts, um, to get more information. Specifically, he uses Everard and Dulles to um, go to the ministry and St. Mungo's. And it made me wonder, do all portraits follow the intentions so willingly of the current headmaster or headmistress? This is quickly answered as we meet Phineas and Jealous Black. Uh, We don't figure out everything about him here, how he is related to um, Sirius. But, um, even though, so the other heads of house, um, call out Phineas for not immediately following Dumbledore's order. So that seems to be that they do have to follow the head, but it makes you wonder the subjectivity of the headmaster or headmistress's intentions and the former Hmm. heads to follow them. Do they have to follow them blindly?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Well, because, hmm.
3: Did it see- it didn't seem like um a- like they were under any sort of magical impulse to do it. In fact, when he started turning it down, one of the other portraits threatened to beat him with her.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. more peer pressure.
3: Yeah,
0: the <laughs> portraits. It's more
3: what they're expected to do. the The portraits
2: yeah. are there to guide current headmasters and to you know to help out in whatever way they can to you know continue the prosperity of the school. Um, so they have the option of turning down an order. They they. Can you know feign sleep as Phineas does and all that kind of thing, but it's you know it's just bad manners.
1: They should do what's, what's being asked, says the Brit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how does I'm curious how this works into the the information we know about how the portraits come to be and how the when they're alive they spend time with their portrait, you know, teaching them about themselves. Mm. And portraits aren't supposed to be able to learn new information. So
2: I guess that depends hmm. on what you mean by learn new information. Yeah, they're able right.
1: to act on. You're still going to
2: have to take in information to be able to respond to it.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Like they learn where Arthur is. So that's technically learning some information. But I don't know. <laughs> so
1: that seems like an inconsistency then.
0: Well, so, it's just they're acting on their environment. It's not affecting like Obviously, it's not affecting their life, because that life is over, but um, right. they can inter- that's just more interacting with their environment, making observances. It's the okay. same thing with the fat lady acknowledging that someone has the correct password, and then opening her door. Mm,
1: okay, yeah. sure. Fair enough. Good comparison. Okay. Maybe
2: it's like they can't increase their intelligence, but they can respond mm-hmm. to... Yeah, respond to level. stimuli.
0: Yeah. That's simple. Yeah.
1: Okay, that makes sense.
0: So Dumbledore tells Fox that they need a warning um, in case, and then later we find out specifically it's for Umbridge. Um, Fox disappears in a flash of fire, always in dramatic fashion. (laughs) And later Fox returns and Dumbledore assumes Umbridge is coming and sends McGonagall to head her off, which she does without hesitation. I am wondering what do you think McGonagall's excuse might have been? Because seemingly Umbridge has found out that they're out of their beds, so something is amiss. What could have been uh, McGonagall's excuse?
1: Hmm. Well, I'm operating under the assumption that eventually Umbridge would have found out regardless. So, I don't know. I can't come up with a good one for this.
0: Because she can't give her too much information. Like, they're worried about a family member that's been hurt. Because she can't let on that they have figured
1: out somehow. Although, family emergency.
3: Yeah, although by this point, uh, Arthur would have been found, and with quick commu- with the quick communication options that are available, somebody could have let Dumbledore know that Arthur was at St. Mungo's.
0: That's fair. Maybe enough Such time for Such as the passed. portraits.
2: Yeah. They could say that the portrait told Dumbledore rather than Harry, rather than
1: Dumbledore telling the portrait, you know. Right. It could work through that way. That's fair. There are options. <laughs> I'm wondering where we are in, I was just thinking about Dumbledore asking Harry, you know, how he saw it. Where are we in the Horcrux journey for Dumbledore right now? That's point 2. Well,
0: that's interesting you ask because that's the exact next point.
1: <laughs> oh. Oh, excellent. All right, cool.
0: So so we get and actually I want to pull it up in the book because there was some dialogue that I wanted to bring to um and
1: That's funny because I didn't even like read your points ahead of time because <laughs> I wanted to be surprised. Huh. This is one of the sections that has
2: always confuse me the most out of the books but it's also in one of the chapters that I love the most so Mm, it's a tough moment for me but we'll see we'll try and battle it out together
0: (laughs) yeah so this is a really and I had I had forgotten about this and then correct me if I'm wrong but I don't at the end but I don't think we ever get a firm answer on what this instrument is um listeners keep in mind it's harder for us to remember things when we go one chapter at a time (laughs) but um after Fox leaves with um, to uh, go see if um, anyone's coming to be prepared for a warning, Dumbledore um, moves to one of the mysterious silver instruments upon his desk. Um, and I'm just going to read it from the book because it's much better that way. Mm-hmm. The instrument tingled into life at once with rhythmic clinking noises. Tiny puffs of pale green smoke issued from the minuscule silver tube at the top. Dumbledore watched the smoke closely, his brow furrowed. After a few seconds, the tiny puffs became a steady stream of smoke that thickened and coiled in the air. A serpent's head grew out of the end of it, opening its mouth wide. Harry wondered whether the instrument was confirming his story. He looked eagerly at Dumbledore for a sign that he was right, but Dumbledore did not look up. "'Naturally, naturally,' murmured Dumbledore apparently to himself, still observing the stream of smoke without the slightest sign of surprise." but in essence divided. Harry could make neither head nor tail of this question. The smoke serpent, however, split itself instantly into two snakes, both coiling and undulating in the, in the dark air. With a look of grim satisfaction, Dumbledore gave the instrument another gentle tap with his wand. The clinking noise slowed and died, and the smoke serpents grew faint, became a formless haze, and vanished. Hmm. So I don't think we ever figure out what this instrument actually is, but I think now with our perspective of finishing the series it's pretty clear Dumbledore is contemplating horcruxes here.
2: Yeah. I've always taken this as the moment where Dumbledore solidifies his theory that the horcruxes have been made and that is this is the point where he starts looking for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so
2: when, you know, when he gets when we get to the whole Dumbledore's army being caught, seen later on, and he leaves, that's the point in which he starts actually physically looking for Horcruxes and looking for clues that we will then see in the next book. But the whole, in essence, divided idea, that just screams of Horcruxes, doesn't it? That you've got one person's soul divided into bits. But the two snakes thing, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, why would it be two snakes and not, you know, Voldemort head that's been split into several pieces? Why is it that the serpent is in essence divided? Is it something about possession? Is it something about having two bits of Voldemort inside the snake if he's a Horcrux and possession? It's.
0: So it's I very actually confusing. thought that the snakes don't represent Nagini, but it actually represents Voldemort and Harry. Um, and it's showing that his Horcrux has been split into another live human.
3: I did actually find a quote from Rowling about the in essence divided concept. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Dumbledore suspected that the snake's essence was divided, that it contained part of Voldemort's soul, and that was why it was so adept, very adept at doing his bidding. That also explained why Harry, the last and unintended horcrux, could see so clearly through the snake's eyes just as he regularly sees through Voldemort. Dumbledore is thinking aloud here, edging toward the truth with the help of the Pensieve.
0: Oh, Wait. so this is a pens- This is the Pensieve?
3: That's, that's the one part I don't understand. It's, this is, the question was specifically what does an essence divided mean? And that was Joe's answer to it. So it it is saying that she hmm. that he was looking for the essence of the snake. That the snake's essence was divided, okay. and that's why it's why. So a see, snake. my
0: thought. So I think there's two things there to talk about. First, the fact that she says it's he was looking into the pensive but. See, I considered maybe this just as the sieve, but I felt like Harry would have acknowledged that because he obviously knows at this point what the sieve is, and he never does. So that's what confused me.
1: Well, and also, like, it says that there's a minuscule silver tube at the top. Yeah. And that and doesn't... It
2: described as, like, an instrument. It doesn't have, like, spindly legs or something. I don't think this is... Right. Right. Described yeah, in that... any way similar. I think that's probably just Joe mistaking... Yeah, what that's what talking I was about thinking. ...in, the, in yeah.
1: the quote. That's probably true.
3: Which mm. does
2: happen occasionally.
1: It, we'll forget yeah, for that. It does seem like it would <laughs> yes. be a
3: very. Speci- it would have to be a very specific device to test whether or not there were multiple souls in one body. That that seems like a very yeah. specific device, but I can't imagine what else it would be doing.
1: I wonder if it's yeah, just something to do with souls and life and ghosts or something of that nature. Um, I don't know exactly what, but that's you know. Hmm. Let's hope for Potomal. <laughs> yes, this is confusing. Yes, this is confusing here. Uh, I almost called you Harry, Rosie. This is confusing.
2: <laughs> but Sorry. I think we're all agreed that this is you know him deciding about Horcruxes. And, um, right. And yep. the fact that Nagini does have a bit of Dumbledore... Not, we're all getting names <laughs> confused today. A bit of Voldemort yeah. um, already. Although I thought we also decided later on that Nagini doesn't become a Horcrux until... Or maybe it's until after... Voldemort got his body back, so it's already a Horcrux by this point.
1: Yeah, I think she became a Horcrux at the end of the last book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because he intended to use Harry when he killed him as the last one. Sure. And since he didn't kill him, he used someone else. (laughs) Huh. I think he used Frank Bryce or someone. Wouldn't that have been funny if he had used Cedric? But uh, he didn't kill. Well, technically he. That's not funny! No, no, I don't mean like funny <laughs> haha. I just mean. That's he did sad. technically kill him because yeah. it was his wand, but Pettigrew did it. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. he
0: would have. Voldemort would have wanted to use his own hand as killing for a Horcrux. He wouldn't want right. to use someone
1: else as a vessel. Right, plus you probably have to do it immediately after or yeah. close to, and he didn't have a body yet, right?
2: But we know that there have been people disappearing over the summer and things as well, so he's had plenty of opportunity
1: to kill someone and make a Horcrux. Right, exactly.
0: So this instrument is interesting. We could talk about the symbolism for a long time, but we'll just let you guys hash it out um, in the dis- on the site in the forums because definitely want to hear what you guys say. Yeah, tell um, us your
2: in essence divided theories.
0: Right. Um, another thing is we um, see Dumbledore make um, a port key here to get Harry and the Weasleys out of Hogwarts and into um, Grimald Place. Um, And he says he can't use the flu network because it's being watched. So it begs the question, what's the regulation on port keys, if any? It doesn't seem, from what we see in the series, that there is much of a regulation on port keys. Obviously, they are sometimes um, officially created, such as for the World Cup, but instances like these don't seem to be regulated. So that makes me wonder, is it extremely difficult to make port keys? That that would be enough of a deterrent of everyone just making them all the time.
2: No. I mean... At the end of the book, um, when um, after the battle <laughs> and when um, Dumbledore is sending Harry back to school, um, he makes a portkey in front of Fudge and Fudge says that you can't just go making an un, um, Authorized. unauthorized portkey in front of the Minister of Magic. Okay. Um, so that suggests that there is a, a lot of authorization needed for portkeys yeah. and only the Ministry can create them legally. Perhaps. Okay, yeah,
0: let me rephrase what I, um, should, I, should I said that poorly, but I'm glad you pointed that out because I forgot that that happened. Um, it does make sense that there is regulation, but how well can the ministry monitor it compared yeah. to the flu network, I think is what the, the question yeah.
1: is. Clearly not very well. No. Right.
3: <laughs> well, the flu network seems, it, does, it doesn't take up physical space necessarily, but it does almost take up, like, bandwidth. There, there is, some, you know, and it, it is, you know, the government that's setting those up. Whereas a port key is just a spell,
1: yeah, right. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's very temporary. It's, it's like apparating with an object, yes, in a way, right? I, yeah, I
2: agree. It's like it's like sidelong apparition where it's the object itself that is the apparating party, and it's bringing mm-hmm. whoever's holding it along for the ride. Um, so it's very hard to to tell when that's happening. In the same way that it's hard
1: to know when someone is apparating, um. That seems so, silly, then, that they would have such regulations on them. A lot of the
3: regulations are silly.
1: Oh, <laughs> I know.
0: British bureaucracy.
1: Yay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but when they do use the port key um, as they're getting ready to be sent away, Harry and Dumbledore lock eyes for the first time in this book. Um, and the effect is instantaneous. The text is, at once Harry's scar burned white hot as though the old wound had burst open again and unbidden, unwanted, but terrifyingly strong. There rose within Harry a hatred so powerful he felt for that instant he would like nothing better than to strike, to bite, to sink his fangs into the man before him.
2: What a run-on sentence. (laughs) 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 But it's a brilliant one. And I love... Joe's writing him. Mm-hmm. So it
0: affirms why Dumbledore, I guess at this point, upon first read, we still don't know that Dumbledore has been intentionally avoiding Harry for this reason. Harry doesn't have the time to really fully consider it because of what's happening with Arthur, but this gives us, um, upon review, um, evidence why Dumbledore's been avoiding Harry's eyes.
1: I wonder what Dumbledore saw.
0: He probably like, would have seen a change in Harry's, like, at least his eyes.
1: Yeah, that's what I was wondering if he saw his normal eyes or. I think he says that he sees like a shadow of the snake behind it. Oh, does mm. he say that? Um, in the
2: the chapter after the one I was just talking about, um, when he's talking about um, you know, everything that's happened over the last year in that one last, tiny little last chapter. prophecy. Yeah,
1: right. that's um, my favorite
2: chapter of the whole series. How did yeah. I not
1: remember that bit? Okay. <laughs>
2: I'm fairly sure he says he he saw a shadow and he knew that his theory was correct that um, Voldemort had um, become aware of the connection between them and it was at this point that he would then start to develop his new plan. Um, right, and
1: that's why they start uh, they start Occlumency. Yes, right. Occlumency.
2: Right. But in that mm-hmm. way, it's interesting because if this is the first time that Voldemort is aware of the connection and has started kind of looking the other way harry's always been looking through his eyes and now voldemort is looking through harry's um can he choose when to create that connection because harry certainly can't and if so like how much of this scene did he see is it just this point like did he start looking and then suddenly this eye connection happened and it rose up or has he been kind of eavesdropping on this entire scene
0: well, I don't think he can choose um, Voldemort. I mean, because I think there's enough evidence in the rest of the series that Harry only experiences this whenever there are like strong outbursts of emotion on Voldemort's side.
2: But then, would that mean that Voldemort would see it when there are strong bursts of emotion on Harry's side?
0: Yeah, that—that's the question that's opened up, right?
1: Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, and I think that, yeah, probably. I'm not sure he heard the whole thing, but Harry is definitely pretty distraught and emotional mm-hmm. at this point. Um, so that would make sense. They didn't really talk about anything super sensitive, I suppose. So even if Voldemort was watching slash listening slash whatever.
2: What would Voldemort make of the In Essence Divided speech? (laughs) Hmm.
1: Maybe he didn't see that part.
0: (laughs) Conveniently not.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he thinks Dumbledore is like a wacky old man anyway, so... Yeah, who knows?
0: But a formidable one, all the same.
1: Nonetheless, right? Exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, um, after they they spend some time in Grandma's place um, with Sirius, um, and this through kind of the end of the chapter when they finally do get to Ar- get to Arthur, the big theme is. Um, how Harry is both the messenger of Arthur's injury and he was the snake itself in the dream and how people are responding to that. So obviously the big one is how the Weasley children and then later Molly and Arthur might be taking this specifically internally. Um, when they get back to grandma place, Harry and all the Weasley children, um, Ron. it says that Ron was still very white, gave him a fleeting look, but did not speak when Harry had finished. This is, time not telling the dream, but he does leave out the part about this being the snake. Um, Fred, George, and Jenny continue to stare at him for a moment. Harry did not know whether he was imagining it or not, but he fancied there was something accusatory in their looks.
3: He was imagining it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 100% imagining it.
1: I mean, it would be really hard to be a Weasley right now and not be looking at Harry like, what the hell... ...is going on. Not necessarily blaming him, but definitely wondering, you know, what is it? What the hell? Why are you involved in this, I guess, is the the question I personally would be asking. Like, why? Why you?
0: And to give Ron a lot of credit, I give Ron a lot of um, trouble because of him um, leaving in Deathly Hallows. But I think here, it's very subtle, but I think it really shows his commitment to Harry because... While Fred, George, and Jenny are very are more outwardly um, expressing their feelings in different ways, how they're channeling it, understandably so, Ron is very quiet. He doesn't seem to be looking at Harry with some accusatory look. He's he's trying to hold it all in, probably processing all of this, but he doesn't immediately snap and um, you know blame Harry, even though he knows at this point the whole story because he was in Dumbledore's office. So I think that really speaks to Ron's commitment to Harry here.
2: I think it's also that Ron knows about Harry's previous dreams, whereas none of the others do.
0: Because mm, those that's those point.
2: dreams are always a secret that, you know, Harry, Ron, and Hermione keep between themselves. They don't want other people kind of thinking he's crazy. Um, so it's, it's a very much built on the trust between that trio at that point that Fred, George, and Ginny, even though we see them so often, aren't aware of a lot of
1: what's going on that the trio are. That's exactly what I was going to say. So, <laughs> okay. Very good. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Um... And as the scene continues, Fred and George, who were so in, um, desiring to be part of the order earlier in the book, suddenly don't care about the order. They just want to see their dad because no one's giving them a lot of information because Arthur was guarding something for the order. Um, Jenny tries to come up with a reason. We see how resourceful she is as to how they would know about what happened. Um, because that's why they can't go see Arthur right now. Ron is still being quiet. Sirius does not handle the twins being upset well at all, um, regarding how Arthur, he tells them Arthur knew what he was getting himself into, which is true, but maybe not what you say to the children of a man who's (laughs) possibly dying at that moment. Um...
2: Sirius doesn't have a lot of social skills. He's not been around people for a very long time. (laughs) But he
0: does in just a moment, right? Because Fred, um... Fred has not such a great moment by saying it's easy for Sirius to say that stuck there in Grandma's place, not risking his neck. But obviously in heated moments like this, it's very common for people to say things they don't mean. They're running on emotions. But surprisingly, when Fred does make this really horrible comment to Sirius, Sirius responds calmly and diplomatically and just tries to get everyone very calm, which I think is a really big moment for Sirius.
1: Mm -hmm. He's finally grown up. (laughs) The little pup is a is a full grown dog now. (laughs) This
3: is probably one of my favorite scenes in this book. Um, I actually lost my mom when I was twenty, and a year or two before this book came out. And so, reading this, I had that night where I sat up all night waiting for information, waiting for information, wondering what the outcome was going to be, just worried sick. And you know, watching them go through this, I went through every phase. I went. I was Fred. I was Ginny. I was Ron all of those emotions, I had all of those that night, so it was really, it really just resonated with me to read this scene and it was just very meaningful for me. Of course, and we know, of course, um, Jo obviously lost her mum as well, so
2: she's got that personal mm-hmm. experience as well, that obviously is why she can write this so well, that it really does, you know, strike to the heart of people who have experienced this. It's um, like,
1: you know, I was just thinking when, um, when you were talking about your personal experience, that they are kind of, like, each individually, the five stages of grief. Yep,
3: absolutely. I saw that. Mm-hmm. I saw that as well. That's funny. Because you don't go through them in sequence. A lot of times you go through them all right. at once. Repeat mm-hmm.
0: some of them. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Right,
3: right, back and forth.
0: Um, mm-hmm. So Molly finally shows up and tells them that Arthur is um, going to be okay. Um, she graciously thinks Harry... And she even thinks Sirius for holding them all there at Grandma's place. Um, one thing I want to say before we move on to this, um, I don't necessarily think Fred and George acted in the most mature manner, not to take anything away, because I think it's totally understandable, but this is one of the first moments that I saw Fred and George as men rather than boys because they seem to really stand up, um, like wanting to know what's wrong with their father. Like it almost, they don't, it's not explicit, but they seem to be taking on this role as, like, taking care of their family because they want to know the answers and they want to deal with it. Um, It's just we haven't seen the twins act out in this sort of manner before because they're just such secondary characters.
2: Mm -hmm. And they're looking after Ginny as well. um, Right. In a way that we haven't really seen them do so far throughout the books. Even, you know, when she was taken in the second book, they didn't seem to care as much. Um, Right, yeah. But, yeah, there's definitely that element that um, this is the moment where they can finally become the kind of that of age wizards that they've been since the beginning of the book um which allows their their leaving later on to be acceptable a mm-hmm, bit more
0: yeah so then on the other hand um harry this was talking about harry you know being the messenger of the dream but now there's also this level of harry actually was the snake in the dream and because we're still dealing with this um fact that arthur's really in critical condition, no one is considering what it means for Harry to have been the snake until like maybe the last couple lines of the chapter. And we'll get to that in just a second. But we're still left with the burning question. What does it mean that, you know, Harry is able to see as um, the snake? Obviously we know the answer having read the series, but at the time we certainly don't. Um, Harry has to reason with himself internally that he doesn't have fangs because he's so worried about this experience that he's had. And he tries to talk to Sirius about his concerns, but Sirius doesn't really help him out too much. He kind of just plays it off. I think this is a contrast to how McGonagall handled it earlier in the chapter. Sirius tells him that he's just in shock and needs rest.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine going through something like that. Like, physically feeling like you're in the body of something that attacked somebody thousands of miles away. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the emotional grief that you would... Oh. yeah. Especially since
0: this has been building, right? I mean, Harry, like, going back to Goblet of Fire, Harry saw the death of Frank Bryce. So, you know, this is something that has been building for a while.
1: Has Harry... He hasn't connected the two at this point. No.
0: Mm-mm. I don't think so. I just don't think he has the space or time to right now.
1: Right. Did they... Just refresh my memory... Did they discuss the Frank Bryce thing? They did a little bit, right? He and Dumbledore.
0: I can't remember, um, I honestly. Think so.
2: And we see that Frank Bryce comes out of Voldemort's wand. Right. Um, right. Uh, in the resurrection. He definitely knows that that was a, a Voldemort connected death.
0: Right. So, kind of the last piece of the chapter is finally getting to St. Mungo's. We find that the entrance is through, um, what is it, Perdendals Limited. um an old abandoned store so it's another interesting muggle entrance or mm-hmm. entrance to the wizarding world from the muggle world that we get we don't have enough time to appreciate it fully because again of the situation um but this is my
2: f- doctor who moment in the book as well like the the mannequin is just yeah that's yeah. totally british yeah, yeah good.
1: They <laughs> should have put this like I know it's not in Diagon Alley or any place around there but how cool would it have been if they had put like
0: yeah, and Muggle London in Muggle London at Universal.
1: Yeah, like just a sign or something that said purge and Dows this yeah. way. Yeah. I don't know. I that would be pretty cheeky. <laughs> pretty funny.
0: So just some quick notes on St. Mungo's itself, aside from Arthur's situation, there are some really clever posters at the front desk. Um even in dire moments, Joe um, shows her creativity and wonderful spin. Um, one of the posters says, "A clean cauldron keeps potions from becoming poisons, <laughs> and another says antidotes are anti-don'ts unless approved <laughs> by a qualified healer. Um, very clever, very wonderful.
2: I think they're mm-hmm. so important as well because this is this could be an extremely dark chapter, but it's just mm-hmm. these little moments of humor that bring it out and make it acceptable for you to carry on reading. You've got these mm-hmm. the pauses in between the grief right
0: mm-hmm. yeah. um, and it makes me really wish. We had more time to explore Mungos. I mean, we see some of it here. We see some of it when Harry finds out that, um, Lockhart is there, mm-hmm. but, um, there's obviously much more to be discovered. And I guess that's kind of, um, dark because it's a hospital, but, um, I still feel like Joe has this really like elaborate scheme of Mungos, like she does everything else. That would be interesting just to know more.
1: Well, clearly, I mean, because she spells... I mean, haha, spells out um, what's on every floor of the hospital. Right. Mm-hmm. So she's clearly, yeah, thought about it in depth.
0: Yeah. And, and it's it, further m- proof
2: that she's really fleshed out the entire wizarding world, even if we're only going to see it
1: with, you know, two chapters right. in a book. Yeah, it's
0: exactly. all
1: there. I bet we'll see it in Fantastic Beasts at some point. Probably. St. I, St. I St. hope goes. so. That would make sense, right?
3: That
0: would be some,
1: good. Some kind of injury. Who
0: hmm. knows? And also, I imagined how... <laughs> interesting it would be to be the person at the front desk that directs all of these wild and zany magical (laughs) maladies and injuries to which floor it's funny sometimes she just sees it and points or directs them to the floor immediately but what an interesting job
3: well we think it would be interesting but to me that character came across as being a typical american dmv employee
0: oh yeah totally (laughs) that's that was it it seemed very um yeah just cold almost
1: dmv good comparison (laughs)
0: But I also, because, like, I also thought about people just queuing um, with all of these things going on, <laughs> <laughs> waiting to talk to the front desk.
2: Holding onto the ankle of the little girl flying above his head. Yep, it's just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: oh. But then we do finally get to see Arthur, who, um, he seems pretty well. He's upreading the Daily Prophet. Um, but the venom from Nagini's bite is, um, his wounds are still bleeding out. And so he has to keep taking a blood replenishing potion every hour. Um, We get to meet his two bedmates in that particular area. One is one bit by a werewolf. I thought about if this is a little bit of foreshadowing because it's so close to Arthur here physically here. And then obviously he has a son who gets bitten by a werewolf. And um, then we see that this woman is also there who has had a chunk of her leg bitten out but won't talk about what happened. Hmm. Did you guys think about the foreshadowing possibility?
1: I feel like werewolves are such an under... Current of the entire series, you know they they're mentioned so often, and you know with Lupin and then uh, Weasley's. I I don't know if it's foreshadowing, but I definitely think that there's some under strain.
2: Do we know if Fenrir Greyback is, is out there at the moment? I think he's in Azkaban.
1: I think he's in Azkaban. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But he ha- yeah, so he'll be breaking out
3: eventually, but not quite yet. So at the end of this book. I do think right. it was important to see how Molly reacted to the werewolf. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. You know, her immediate like, should he be here? Should you know, shouldn't he be in his own ward sort of thing? I don't know if that was foreshadowing, mm-hmm. but it definitely shows some character growth as to how she reacts yeah. later on.
2: That's true. It's reaffirming true. to us as well that um we we still see people have these prejudices and um we also know that, you know, they're, they're there for a reason. There are bad werewolves out there that aren't biting people. Um so it's it's not like trust all werewolves, even though we trust Lupin. Right. But also that the fact that um Lupin goes to talk to that werewolf, that could be foreshadowing of Lupin talking to the werewolves in general in the future. That's true. So yeah, there's lots of little bits that you could read into that.
0: Um so when they actually talk to Arthur, the Weasleys try to get him to reveal what's going on or what happened, what he was guarding. Um one of the twins even says you were guarding something for the order, weren't you? Um and Molly keeps trying to redirect him. Arthur is very casual in his conversation, but I think it was very um, important that Molly almost immediately, now that she knows Arthur is going to be okay, shifts her concern to the order business. She's the one that keeps stopping Arthur from saying too much, um, you know, redirecting the conversation. And um, it's it's strictly about the order now that he's okay.
1: Yet they still have the conversation. They kick the kids out of the room. Right. And they still have the conversation even though Arthur's not in a private room.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, I didn't think about that, but those other two Whoops. people are there. That's yep. probably just slight oversight by Joe. Probably. Um so, but as you mentioned, the kids are ordered out and um Moody and Tonks and I think that's it at this moment. Yeah, go in to join Arthur and Molly. Is that that's all reth- uh, is that everyone that's there right now? I think so.
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't think, I think else. so. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And um, so they talk about the attack, and Fred and George pull out some extendable ears, and everyone listens in, even though Harry hesitates for a moment. Um, they think that Nagini, Voldemort was using Nagini to scope out the place. We still don't know what the place is, what the object is, but they seem at least uh, relieved that Nagini didn't find out too much information and molly seems to think that dumbledore as we talked about early earlier um, dumbledore has been waiting for this to happen to harry and moody obviously incorrectly uh, in a way it's a degree i guess um moody seems to think that voldemort is possessing harry and that is when the all the weasleys and harry break off the extendable ears and harry like has this moment of like oh my god and everyone's just staring at him and that's how the chapter ends
2: On to Christmas at the Closed Ward, which is one of my favorite chapters ever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is a good chapter.
2: It's interesting that Mad-Eye is so careless, I think, in this scene, to be discussing order business so openly from everything that we know about him. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't seem to strike true.
1: And he doesn't really show much um, care for Harry either, which obviously is a contrast to Barty Crouch Jr. Mm Moody. Mm-hmm. you know, who actually cared about Harry a in lot. In a twisted way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, shows the contrast between the two, I suppose.
0: Also just amazing to, like, look back and realize, like, how far Joe takes us along and makes us guess at things. And we still, like, with no inkling of anything as to what a horcrux is. Like, she mm-hmm. really just kind of strings us along until we figure that out, what it actually is, explicitly.
3: When I was doing some research on the In Essence Divided question, um... I definitely ran across some conversations from before uh, the next book came out, before Half-Blood Prince came out, with people just speculating wildly as to what that meant. Yeah. yeah. It was, it, people were just crazy about what what could that possibly mean without knowing about the Horcruxes.
0: I miss those days passionately.
3: Yeah. I remember after Order of the Phoenix came out, there was
2: so much um, fanfiction that came out uh, between Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince, and just i mean st mungo's in particular really captured people's attention it's only in there for two chapters um and then mentioned kind of sporadically throughout the rest of the book but you know the scene with neville in the in the next book in the next chapter um and just having all of this detail in such a short amount of time was just a playground for people to just go and play with um but The amount of detail in there that we think, oh, okay, this is interesting, this is just more kind of fleshing out the world, but it's actually relevant, is just incredible. And, yeah, just... I love Jo. She's brilliant. (laughs) OGM. OGM, Um, definitely.
1: So now we'll move on to our podcast question of the week for this week. Um, So, in this chapter... As we just talked a lot about, you know, St. Mungo's and the Order and Harry and the Horcruxes and the Porky's and all that. So we're seeing a lot. It's a one-sided story, obviously. We're seeing this from Harry's point of view. We are wondering about the other half of the story. So the question this week is, during the scene of St. Mungo's, we clearly see how the Order is responding to the attack on Arthur. Assuming that Lord Voldemort and Dolores Umbridge know everything that happened— What is the ministry and Lord Voldemort doing at this moment? Also, the ministry never publicly or privately, as far as we know, acknowledged the attack on Arthur. Why not? What was the official internal story of the attack? So if someone noticed Arthur wasn't at work, what did they say? So we want to know your answers, your theories, your thoughts. As usual, you can go to alohomora.mugglenet.com and share them with us, and we might just read them on next week's show. And
2: all that remains to be done on this very special jam-packed 100th episode of Alohomora is to thank our fabulous guest. So, Madeline, I hope you had a good time. I had a fantastic time. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for being here.
0: And if you would like to join the show as was a guest, just like Madeline did, we would love to have you. So just head over to alohomora.mugglenet.com where you can find more information on the Be On The Show page. If you have a set of Apple headphones, you're all set. That's enough equipment. If not, nothing fancy, just something that will allow you to have a really great and clear recording.
1: And in the meantime, if you just want to stay in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN, Facebook.com slash Dumbledore. We're on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Of course, our phone number is 206 go Elbis, 206-462-5287. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, and also follow us on Snapchat at MN underscore Alohomora. And of course, our audio boo. It's free, and all you need is an internet connection and a microphone. You can record us a message directly at alohomora.mugglenet.com, and we might just play it on the show. So it can be a reaction to something we said, a question for a future episode, a general comment, whatever you want. Let's hear it.
2: And also remember that we have our store. We have our fabulous new house shirts on there. Thank you so much for sending in your pictures. We love seeing you wearing them, um, mm-hmm. and we also have everything else that we normally do, as well as ringtones that are free and available on our website.
0: Also, make sure to check out our smartphone app, which is available seemingly worldwide, and prices vary depending on location. The app includes things like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. And that is going to do it for this century mark oh. of love More, our one hundredth <laughs> episode. I'm Caleb Graves.
1: I'm Rosie Morris and I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 100 of Locomora.
2: Hello, Aloha Mora. Mora. This is Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And we just rang in to say, Happy, Happy 100th, 100th Anniversary! Oh, uh, I thought it was their 100th anniversary. No, Ron, don't be silly. It's their 100th show. If it was their anniversary, they'd be about as old as Celestina Warbeck. Hey, I think she looks good for her age. Well, Aloha Mora's still looking good too. Keep inspecting the wizarding world closely, you guys. You're doing great. We wish we could answer some of your questions, but due to the International Statute of Secrecy, combined with Harry signing many of his life story rights away to J.K. Rowling, we are forbidden from doing so. But we can tell her what you'd like to see on Pottermore. still don't see why web full of stuff about Harry is so great. I hate anything with spiders. Website, Ron, website. I've told you... The internet doesn't actually have anything to do with spiders. No, thanks. I'll keep my distance. Hey, you two. They only want these things to last 60 seconds. Let's wrap it up. Right. right yeah, sorry. Happy 100th show, Alohomora. Open, Open the, the double, double door.
3: door. Still don't get what that means.